And for the rest of us, um, because we're going to be looking at uh, 49 verses this morning, um, we don't have a thick enough bulletin uh, to hold all those uh, pages. So therefore, there's this kind of uh, a rectangular, they call it a book, I think, a Bible that's in front of you uh, that you can actually open that up uh, if you want to turn to uh, uh, Daniel chapter 11. And we'll, we're going to read through the first 35 verses uh, and then you'll see that the, the last section is, is in your uh, bulletin, and so we can look at that as, as we go through that. And I want to read these first 35 primarily um, uh, so that we're familiar with it as we, we do go through. We're going to spend a little bit of time on, on this section. Uh, let's uh, hear now the word of our God. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. You know, I, I did this first service. I'm supposed to set the context and remind you, because it sounds like Daniel's saying that, right? But Daniel didn't write this. Uh, this is Gabriel, uh, the angel, that is speaking at this point. And so for us to, to understand, he's telling Daniel uh, what uh, this vision is. So let's keep in mind, this is Gabriel speaking through this whole chapter. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. And now I'll tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he's risen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to the authority which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. Then the king of the south will grow strong, along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His dominion will be a great dominion indeed. After some years, they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power, but she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her, as well as he who supported her in those times. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his, in his place, and he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and display great strength. Also their gods and their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold he will take into captivity to Egypt, and he on his part will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but he will return to his own land. His sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through, and that he may again wage war up to this, his very fortress. The king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. For the king of the north will again raise a greater multitude than the former, and after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. 
Then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege ramp, and capture a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him, and he will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. He will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of, the, of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many, but a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Then in his place one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days he will be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. In his place a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered and also the prince of the covenant. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception, and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them, and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army, so the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army with war. Nope. For war. But he will not stand. For schemes will be devised against him. Those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will, be, will overflow, but many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table. But it will not succeed. For the end is still to come at the appointed time. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before. For ships of Katim will come against him, therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifices, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. By smooth words he will turn to godliness, godlessness, though those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity, and by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help, and many will join with them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Well, that's clear. <laughs> Let's pray and see if God can help us to understand. 
Lord, we do love you. We thank you for the kindness that you show us in allowing us to gather together to worship you today. We thank you for the many blessings which you've given to us and particularly for your word and that your word is true. Lord, we ask that you help us to understand, that you guide us and instruct us, and that you would change our lives. We pray for our children and children's worship, and Lord, we ask that you'd set them free, set them free in faith, that they would trust in Jesus. Would you do this for his name's sake? Amen. The first seminary I attended was uh, Sangre de Cristo Seminary in the mountains of Colorado. I, I love the story that when I first got there, there were four students, not in my class, in the school. Um, but uh, but it, was, it was a great time. And there was one class that was really unique to this school. And uh, we, it, it became known as EHHTP. And there are two reasons for that. The first is because we were almost all PCA, and with Presbyterians, we have to use initials. It's just required. The second is what it all stood for. Stands for exegetical, hermeneutical, homiletical teaching process. EHHTP, better, right? It, it just is, and that's why you go there. But when you understand what it stands for, you really understand what the class is about. And, and it's, it's the, most seminaries will have a, classes on exegesis, classes on hermeneutics, classes on homiletics, and classes on teaching. And what Dr. Zeller did is he took them all into one because he said this is all interrelated disciplines. You start out with exegesis, which is how you, you, you take the scripture and you try to understand precisely what the scripture is saying. Not what you want the scripture to say, but what it is actually saying. And then you have uh, hermeneutics, which is the, the work of interpreting scripture. And this, can, this needs to be driven somewhat by, by the different genres uh, that you, you find uh, within scripture. Like we're looking at now a prophetic uh, genre, and there's a certain way of interpreting prophecy that's different than how you'd interpret, say, our call to worship, which was from Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6, which is very much an epistle, and, and uh, he's just spelling out certain truths. So you've got to understand those different hermeneutical uh, disciplines. And then you have the homiletical teaching process. Homiletics is the, the art of preaching. So how do you take this information from the text that you've interpreted and then present it in a logical fashion that can actually be beneficial and understood, both of those are actually kind of helpful, in a sermon, right? Or in a teaching, a lesson. And so it's just a really, it was my favorite class at, at the seminary. It was just really, really fun. And, and one of the things that we learned in that is um, your, your goal as you're studying the passage is to understand what was the intention of the original author to the original audience, so for us, we're thinking, so what did Gabriel want the Jews to understand, the nation of Judah to understand? Why was he writing this vision to the, the nation of Judah who were away in captivity? Well, I think it's, 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 it's key for us to, to grasp that because as I stop and think about, so why? What did Gabriel want? What did Daniel want as he wrote this out and distributed it to the, the folks uh, in the land? Do you think he was distributing it so that people could then write books about what day uh, the Messiah was coming? It's just, just not the point. It's too, there are too much uh, uncertainties and ambiguities in the text, right? You wouldn't be able to draw out, oh, well, here's the date that he's going to come. He didn't write it for that, for that reason, and therefore that's not the reason that we ought to be reading it, and we shouldn't be getting that understanding out of it, right? So much of, of uh, prophetic 
uh, literature today as we seek to interpret prophecy is we're trying to pick the days and the times and, and know precisely what's going on, but that was never the intention. That wasn't what the original author wanted. What did he want? Why was Gabriel giving this information to Daniel and Daniel giving this information to the people? I think the primary thing was so that they would understand that, that all this stuff is going to happen in, in their future. And, and as they move forward, they would know, oh, God has said so. And so their faith in God would be strengthened, right? And he wanted to tell them at that time, saying, I know what's going to happen in the future, and I'm in control of it, and I'm going to make sure that it happens, so you need not lose heart. You can trust God. And the entire section, this vision is given for the overarching reason of promoting our trust of God, that we need to trust him. And that's why it's there, and that's why it's there for us, why it was there for the Jews at that time. Daniel 10 through 12, as we talked about last week, is, is the final section of the book of Daniel. Um, chapter 11 is the main vision. Chapter 10 was just the work the angels had to do to get Daniel ready to receive the vision. Remember, we looked at that whole thing, that, that he was just wiped out, and, and three different times an angel had to touch him and and give him strength. He needed a vision of Christ uh, there in order to be strong enough, in order to receive this vision. And then chapter 11 through 12.4 is the vision itself. And here's, here's what is, is going to transpire in chapter 12. It's just some final instructions. So what? What should he do now? And so that's our, our, our final section that we're looking at. Um, by, by God's grace, we will finish uh, Daniel on the 31st. Um, if not next week, it may be next week. So um, we just uh, ask God to, to, to guide us through that. God reveals the future to show us that he knows and to invite us to trust him. And so what we're going to consider this morning for the next several minutes is how, how do we trust God? What does that look like? And so I want us to, to uh, take some time and meditate on that. And, and we trust God, first of all, because we recognize that God appoints kings. God appoints kings. Uh, frankly, um, I tend to hear sermons on God appointing the king about every four years. Sometimes to uh, keep uh, God's people from being disheartened and sometimes to keep God's people from gloating. Because uh, so often uh, we're, we, we have a tendency to want to put our trust in the, in the king, but we're reminded that it's God who appoints those kings. And so we recognize that. As we look at chapter 11, for us, it's history. The vast majority of it has already taken place. It's, 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 it's in our past. But to Daniel, it was all future. To the, the nation of Judah, it was all future. And so it... it uh, as, as we consider that, we have to think about what it meant for them and what it means for us. For them, it wasn't going to happen for maybe two to three hundred years, many of the things that are written here. Two to three hundred years. Imagine being told now what's going to happen two to three hundred years. There's an element in it's like, well, I'll, I won't be here, right? So why, why would I care, right? And, but, but yet to begin to, to recognize it's significant, we could do the same thing. We could turn around and say, well, yeah, but this happened even before Christ came, so why do I even care? Um, which made the challenge of preaching this rather great. How do I preach a historical lesson uh, to us in a fashion that's uh, beneficial? So, of course, I decided to stall by talking about exegetical hermeneutical humility. Um, no, I think that there's a, a, a tremendous uh, message there for us. 
in recognizing, first of all, he says in verse 1, in the first year of Darius the Mede. You remember who's talking? It's Gabriel. And we remember Gabriel stands in the presence of God Almighty. Gabriel knows the name of the king. He knows the name of the king because God the Father told him what it was and had appointed Darius the Mede to lead at just that time. Not only had appointed him to lead, but had appointed Gabriel to strengthen him. Isn't that an astounding thought? That he gave this, this angelically powerful being such, such a responsibility. In this chapter, uh, the words, the English words, arise or rise are used seven different times regarding leaders, regarding different leaders, that they're going to rise up, that it's, it's God who's going to raise them up. They're not just uh, seeking to be able to do that themselves. It's God in his hand who lifts them up to that position and appoints them that time in which they're going to rule. We see this uh, concept in, in different passages in Jeremiah chapter 27. Remember, Jeremiah is a contemporary of Daniel. And in uh, Jeremiah 27 verse 6, Jeremiah writes, now I've given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the wild animals of the field to serve him. He starts out and he reminds people that Nebuchadnezzar, who was holding all of the people in captivity, that had, he, Nebuchadnezzar had been raised up by God. It's God who had appointed him. It is God who had put him in that place. And the people of Judah needed to remember that it was God who had done that. And so he goes on in verse 7, he says, All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings will make him their servant. And he even told them, as Nebuchadnezzar was, was in uh, uh, ruling and was in power, that there would come a time in which that was going to end. Now they've seen that happen. And they've seen it take place. But they've seen that it was done because of the hand of God. Because God had appointed that time. You remember that moment in Jesus' life. It's recorded in John chapter 19, in which Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate. And Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? I just want to really put this in context and let's think about the significance of this moment. I think the word might be chutzpah. Does that sound about right? that a man can point to the true and the living God and say, do you not know the authority that I got here? Right? I mean, holy Moses, who's got that kind of arrogance to be able to make such a statement? But there he is, he's saying that to Jesus. So what does Jesus say? Jesus responds to him. Now, it's, it's, it's not in the Greek, but I think it's implied. Jesus answered and said, um... <clears throat> The um isn't there, but I, 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 he had to. I mean, Jesus couldn't have missed the irony of this moment. It's like, seriously, dude? You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. I wonder, as the king of kings said to Pilate, the one who delivered me has greater sin was Pilate aware of his own sin at that moment because it was clearly implied? And was that a part of what was on his mind as he tried really hard to get himself free from that, even washing his hands? It very well could be, but this is an incredible moment in which Jesus lays out the principle for Pilate and he says, you're nothing without my Father. Every speck of authority that you have has been granted to you by my Father. 
You can only release me if he allows it. You can only crucify me if he allows it. He's the one with the real authority. We need to remember that as we look at the, the rising of all of these kings in this, in this passage of chapter 11, particularly verses 1 through 35, as we see that it's God who has done that. And we see that God raised up Greece in verses 1 through 4, which we've, we've already read, we see him raising up Greece. He shows that there are at least four more Persian kings that they're going to have to do. It doesn't mean that there's only going to be four. He says there are going to be three, and then there's going to be a fourth. And there, there are several kings in between there. And the, we, we know of four Persian kings. We know of Cyrus. We know of Darius. We know of Xerxes. And of course, Artaxerxes. Uh, those, those we, we can't necessarily pinpoint what, how we know them, but we've heard those names before, and they're, they're not popular today, so it must be in the Bible. Uh, but we recognize that. And then he talks about this mighty king, uh, particularly, I think it's in verse 3. He says, and a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. This mighty king we understand to be Alexander. So that Alexander is going to come up. We've got the Medo-Persian uh, Empire that has risen, and it is toppled by Alexander the Great. And we, we know of Alexander the Great, and we've already heard about him in Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, uh, he is mentioned. Chapter 7 and verse 6, where we read, After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, who had on his back four wings of a bird, and the beast also had four heads, and a dominion was given to him. And we, 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 we see this connection, first of all, that uh, Alexander brought a, a new element to uh, warfare and that he would, would move in quickly and conquer, and he was just incredibly fast. So this idea of, of a leopard, which is a, a, a faster uh, beast, and then with four wings as well to emphasize the speed with which he would go. And the four heads are the four generals that would take... Uh, uh, command after he passed away. And we read about that in chapter 11. Uh, Alexander is also mentioned in chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, as we read about him as, as a goat. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. Again, the swiftness. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. Again, the, the uh, ram was uh, Medo-Persian Empire, Media and Persia, as the two horns. And then Alexander the Great comes in and shows great wrath toward them. And in verse 21, the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And so that's how we know that uh, what we're talking about, this mighty king, is Alexander the Great, and it's God who has raised him up. But God not only raises up Greece, he also then divides Greece. Once Alexander died, there were uh, three rulers that were uh, connected to him that, that led for just a short time, just a few years after uh, his death, which was short as it was, his, his life was short, and then these three rulers. And after they died, the last of them died, the kingdom was divided into four under four generals, which we read about, we read about in uh, uh, the first, uh, uh, in, in verses 5 through 19, about the four generals. Now, the emphasis in the prophecy moves to just two of those generals, to the one to the south and the one to the north. Uh, the one to the south was Ptolemy, which uh, is a, a word, a name that we're somewhat familiar with, and his uh, basis was Egypt, which was south of, of Judah, and the one to the north, which was in Syria, was uh, Seleucus, um, or the Seleucid 
uh, dynasty. And so these are the two that were on both sides of Judah. Now we need to keep that in mind because remember, he's writing this to Judah. Does Judah really care what happens off in Iraq somewhere? No, it doesn't matter to them. What matters to them is what happens in their land. And these north and south parts of Greece are going to fight with each other. Well, where are they going to fight? A lot in Judah. And so they keep going back and forth through Judah. And so Judah continues to be oppressed. And that's why it's written about these two kings. Now, there are different things. If you remember, as we were reading it, we talked about, uh, we, we saw the, the fact that the king of the south would send uh, 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 one of his daughters up to the north and would marry. And that, that, that happened. Uh, it was Bernice. Um, she was probably a granddaughter of Ptolemy. And she went up to the north and uh, married a granddaughter of Seleucus. And uh, in, in, in doing that marriage, that was all good. But the grandson of Seleucus had to uh, divorce his wife. And then he married Bernice. And then he got back with his old wife, who very promptly poisoned uh, Bernice and Bernice's baby and her husband. Because it, things were lovely that way. But anyway, so all this is taking place. And we get a picture of this. We see this taking place. And, and what is specifically mentioned about this, this sending this daughter up. And we see it lived out in history two to three hundred years after it was prophesied. And it's a wonderful thing. But it's this division that has taken place between the, the north and the south uh, of Greece. That they're, they're set apart. So we see that God raised up Greece, he divided Greece, and then he raised up Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes in verses 20 through 35 is what we're learning about. And, and Antiochus is mentioned specifically in verse 21. In his place, a despicable person will arise. Antiochus was awful in the way that he treated God's people and the things that he did in Judah. And, and desecrating the temple in ways that had never been done before or since. And it was just awful. Even things like, and you can imagine for a, for a Jew what this would mean, that he would go into the temple and on the holy altar he would sacrifice a pig. And just think of what that would mean to a Jew and how that would violate every, every concept of their, uh, um, their, their religious faith. I mean, we can, we can imagine how that would be of, of thinking of horrible things someone might do on a cross, like crucifying our Savior was an awful thing that was done on the cross in an effort to desecrate that which is, that which is right. Um, in the, the book of Second Maccabees, which is not in the Bible, it is in the uh, uh, Apocrypha, which is uh, in between the, the two testaments, uh, in between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, there are a few historical books that individuals had written, and they're not canonical, they're, they're, they're not the Word of God, but they're helpful sometimes to read to get an idea of the history of what was going on. And in the book of Second Maccabees, we have uh, the, a description of Antiochus Epiphanes to understand just how despicable he really was. Remember, it was Gabriel who said he was despicable two to three hundred years before Antiochus is even born. And then we have a description of how despicable he was. It says that he commanded his soldiers to cut down relentlessly everyone they met and to kill those who went into their houses. Then there was massacre of young and old, destruction of boys, women, and children, and slaughter of young girls and infants. Within the total of three days, 80,000 were destroyed, 40,000 in hand-to-hand -hand fighting, and as many were sold into slavery as were killed. That's uh, 80,000 killed and 80,000 sold into slavery. We can see something of how despicable this individual was. 
He goes on to say, not content with this, Antiochus dared to enter the most holy temple in all the world, guided by Menelaus, who had become a traitor both to the laws and to his country. He took the holy vessels and his pollu- with his polluted hands and swept away with profane hands the votive offerings that other kings had made to enhance the glory and honor of the place. Antiochus was elated in spirit and did not perceive that the Lord was angered for a little while because of the sins of those who lived in the city and that this was the reason he was degrading the holy place. But it had not happened that they were involved in But if it had not happened that they were involved in many sins, this man would have been flogged and turned back from his rash acts as soon as he came forward, just as Hilodrius had been, whom King Seleucus sent to inspect the treasury. What do we see from that? We see something of just how bad Antiochus was. And we see that God is telling Daniel years before that he was going to rise up, this despicable person was going to rise up. And we see that even the Maccabees understood that it was God who had raised him up, understood that the only reason he was raised up was discipline for God's people and the sin which they had committed. And he understood that it was God who had the authority to raise up and to cast down. Is it possible that these Jews, at the time of Antiochus, were able to remember the words of Daniel and remember that God said this would happen? And we understand that it is by his hand that this has taken place. You see, God appoints kings. He raised up Greece. He divided Greece. He raised up Antiochus Epiphanes. And as we recognize that what was future for Daniel is history for us and we can see it fulfilled, we recognize that we can trust God. We can trust God when he raises up kings. We can trust him. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 22 is an important passage when it comes to the idea of prophecy. For God begins to say, there is a test to know if a prophet is legit. And that is that when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So a prophet comes and, and says, you know, whatever, and then it doesn't happen? Not a real prophet, hasn't spoken from God, right? What if it does happen? It is a prophet of God. I shouldn't be afraid of this one because he's spoken presumptuously, but how about the one who said it was going to happen and it happened? Maybe a little fear, Right? Maybe a little paying attention to that. Maybe that's really significant. And what we see from that then is God made this prophecy two, three hundred years before it happened, and we're looking back and we can see that it's history. And what do we know then? We know that God can be trusted. We know that God has spoken. We know that it's his message that was brought. And so we trust him for doing that. I want to compare for a moment Daniel with Revelation. Not in an effort... To say, oh, well, these words were spoken then, these were No, no, no. I want to look at the, the, the context of what's taking place. Daniel is writing to the people of God, the church in the Old Covenant, who are oppressed and who are going to face incredible oppression and persecution for the next hundreds of years, right? And he wants them to know you can still trust God in the midst of that. 
before it ever happens, by telling them what's going to happen, they're able to say, okay, I can trust God even in the midst of this. God has not left us. The book of Revelation was written for the New Covenant Church who was facing persecution, who was going to face more persecution, who was going to be oppressed for several hundred years, so that as that persecution and that trial would come upon them, they would be able to say, God has said this was going to happen, and it'll be okay. And we can rest in him and trust in him. I believe that Daniel and Revelation serve a very similar role within uh, the, the word of God, within the, the, the covenants that they uh, were written in. And, and to understand that, is very important. Because we need the testimony of faithful believers, do we not? And by faithful, I mean those who are filled with faith. We need that testimony because as we live our lives, we come from time to time to an edge. And we look down and all we see about six inches to a foot below us is a cloud. We don't know if it's just 14 inches thick or if it's 1,400 feet thick or deep, right? All we see is the cloud. We have no idea what to do. We don't know what will happen as we step over. We're uncertain as to all of that. What will we do? And as we stand there, we hear a voice. And it says, friend, you know me. I'm right below you. And there's a great cloud between us, and you can't see me, but I can see you, and I am standing on a safe spot. Here's how you get there, my friend. Follow my advice, though you cannot see the steps. And as we do, we safely arrive at that place down where our friend is telling us. I think of that when I think of my, my father-in-law. And having watched him go through some incredibly difficult times and some incredible loneliness, I never forget him sitting at the, the top of the steps of an empty house with uh, his kids all gone, his wife has left him, and there he is with a cat he didn't even really like. And there he was. And his message to us was consistently always the same, no matter what we went through. God is faithful, and he can be trusted. Even in that moment, that's what he was convinced of. And that truth never left him. And he made certain that he continually spoke that to everybody that he met. He said, one thing I know is that God is faithful and he can be trusted. He's that witness from below the cloud telling us that he's faithful. Daniel is that witness from below the cloud telling us that God is faithful and he can be trusted. Even when kings are appointed by his hand. He is still faithful, and he can be trusted. So we can trust God when evil arises. Looking at verses 36 through 45, and we'll kind of walk through this for a moment. To trust God when evil arises. In Job chapter 1, we have this interesting interaction between God and the devil. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. 
That's a thought that I have to face in my own life. Would I? Do I serve God for nothing? Do I serve God because He has blessed my life so richly? He's given me so many wonderful things, so much ease in my life. Is that why I serve Him? It's a question every one of us needs to ask because it's an accusation that the devil brings against every one of us. Do we serve God for nothing? Do we serve Him just because He's given us so many good things? I don't know. I pray to God that's not true. But I recognize that Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And what if Jesus meant it? What if Jesus actually spoke truth? Then I need to recognize the dangers of, of the blessings that I've received. Verse 35 is a transition that, uh, uh, between these two sections. Some of those who have insight will fa fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time but it is still to come at the appointed time. I believe in verse 35, he's beginning to point our attention to um, not just the, the, the next moment and continuation of the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, but to really look at the very end. And not Antiochus as the, the, the evil king he's going to talk about, but the Antichrist. Um, now, there, we, we have to be clear that, that it's, it's, we, we don't know for sure. There are some elements of the next section that we see fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes. But there's some parts we don't. We also see the next section talks about some, some, some absolute ends and some extreme language which seems to draw our attention to understand that it's really talking about the Antichrist. But you see, in prophetic uh, literature, and I already talked about the hermeneutics of prophetics, one of the things that you have to do is when you interpret uh, prophecy is you recognize often there's, there's a, an already, something where you see it fulfilled in time, and there's then a greater fulfillment that will take place later. We see that particularly in the, the covenant God made with David. That as God entered into a covenant with David, David said, I'm going to make a, a house for God. And God says, when did I ask for a house? He says, you're not going to make a house for me, but your son's going to make a house for me, right? And so we see that fulfilled in two different ways. Who, who built the new temple, the first temple, the only temple? It was Solomon, right, who was David's son. So David's son built a house for God. But where's the real house of God? Was it made of stone? No, it's you, the church, who built the church. Oh, that's David's other son, Jesus, the son of David, right? And so you see the already and the not yet. So you see that both of them, and so he's promising David that his son, Jesus, would build the church, which is where God would dwell. We have the same thing taking place in this next section, that it's, some of it's, 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 it's temporally fulfilled in Antiochus, but it's speaking of a greater fulfillment in the Antichrist. So we turn our attention to that, and I think that there are four lessons that we gain about evil as we look at this, this section. And the first is that evil opposes God. Look at verse 36. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that will which is decreed will be done. He will show no... Reg oh, I, I think of... 36 and 37, correct? Yes. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desires of women, nor will he show regard for any other god. He will magnify himself above them all. 
when we talk about Antichrist, we're talking about the personification of evil. We, we have the poster child of evil in our age, right? It's Hitler, right? That's, if we're, anyone's talking about evil people, Hitler is going to be brought up. Well, in, in Daniel's age, or actually in the intertestamental period in the early first, uh, New Testament, Antiochus Epiphanes was that poster child for evil. So those were the two, but both of them are imperfect. The Antichrist is more evil than either. And to begin to recognize that. And so as we're seeing this, this evil personified and just how, how wretched and how despicable Antichrist would be, we see that the first thing that he does is he opposes God. Uh, Psalm 14.1 tells us the fool is said in his heart, there is no God. In Romans chapter 3, we have this uh, section in which Paul is laying out the total depravity of man, and, and he has this lengthy section between verse 10 and verse 18, in which he's just uh, pointing out the sinfulness of man. When he gets to the apex, the absolute climax of the sinfulness of man, in verse 18, he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's as bad as it could possibly get. It's worse yet than what you were talking about. Here's the end. And to think of that leader, that ultimate leader, the Antichrist, who will completely oppose God, who will say in his heart, there is no God, and who will live as though that's a reality. And who will have no fear of God before his eyes. What would he do? But more than just that, imagine when evil rises, and it's not just the leader of the land, but the evil that arises is in the culture around us, in which the people around us, in which our peers are saying the same thing. There is no God. And they begin to pressure us and to push us to live as though there is no God. What will we do then? Will we trust God when evil arises all around us to where I say, I will follow God even if all will reject me? I will trust God when evil arises, evil that opposes God, and evil that uses power to oppress. Verses 38 and 39. But instead, he will honor a God of fortresses. A God of fortresses. I'll go ahead and read through. A God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. Yesterday we had our Voices Conference, which is our annual conference, um, and uh, the purpose of it is to give support and encouragement and hope to those who have faced, who are survivors of domestic abuse. And we want to help them to know that they're loved and to gain their voice, that that which has been taken from them will be restored to them. I remember teaching my sons as they were growing up uh, uh, an important lesson, and I would say to them many, many times, the reason God has made you strong is to protect those who are not. That's why God gives us strength, to be the protection of those who do not have that strength. But you see, evil does not view it that way. Evil believes that power has been given to it to oppress others. And the powers that we see in this passage, the power of physical power, as he talks about the fortresses. And he will have these fortresses. A fortress is, is an image of, of the physical power that was, that was his. He was able to conquer and to build a great fortress to maintain it. 
And we see that takes place, that people will use their strength in order to oppress others. We see that in governments that will do that. We watched that in, in the time since I've been here in the uh, uh, coup that was uh, held in Zimbabwe. As we watched the general of the armies use his tanks to take over the government of that nation. Not for the benefit of that nation, but for his own strength and for his own power to be expressed. And so he used force, he used physical power to oppress. We also see that there are those who use financial powers, where he begins to talk about the the gold and the silver and the costly stones and the treasures. And we see that there are those who will use such things in order to gain power over those around them, to oppress other people. One of the things that we see as we work within the refuge is those who have uh, financial abuse. And that is the individual who will use their money in order to control their wife. Maybe give her an allowance. That's one of the most insulting things I've ever heard, that, that, that a husband might give an allowance to his wife. You give that to your child. But to your spouse, who is your equal, she has everything that you have, and it's all together. And to grasp that difference. But instead, he uses what little money he has to stop her from being able to be free. And so you have that evil of oppression through money. And the evilest oppression goes on as he talks about that it is through the help of a foreign God. Well, let's remember, there's no such thing. How many gods are there? I could ask Erebus that. I don't know what she'd say, but I could ask her that. (laughs) She's a little unpredictable, that one. There's only one God. There's no other foreign God. So who's the foreign God? It's the God that the oppressor has made up in his own mind and that he uses, oh, you've got to do what this God says as a way of oppressing people. Brittany's dad writes a blog about just that, oppressive, uh, abusive leaders within the church. And we see that as, as, as a reality. And we see it time after time after time. Christianity Today has been writing these articles about the fall of Mars Hill. And I don't want to bash Mars Hill. It's just sad to see an example in which religion is used to control other people. And that's the most wicked of all of these oppressions. What will we do when that happens? When evil rises. When evil rises that opposes God. When evil rises that uses power to oppress. Will we still trust God? Yes. And when evil seems to win... At the end of the time, verse 40, the king of the south will collide with him and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships and he will enter countries, overflow them and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land and many countries will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries and the land of Egypt will not escape. Doesn't it kind of sound like evil winds? Yeah. And it's not new. Asaph in Psalm 73, his great distress that he said he became like, almost like a beast. He was just so senseless because he looked and he saw that the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. And he didn't know what to do with that. And he struggled with that. And God helped him by showing him the end of the wicked. And he said, that's not the end of the story. But we see the same thing with Habakkuk. Habakkuk, who prophesied of the coming of Babylon to take God's people into captivity. And he asks the same question. He says, why is it that the righteous suffer and the, and, and, and the wicked prosper? 
Well, the message God brought to him was, well, you're not as righteous as you think you are. And that was one of the things they began to see. He said, well, it's going to happen because of your, your sin and you're going to be disciplined. And so there's a different message to these two different individuals. But we all struggle with that. Will we trust God when it appears that evil is winning? When it appears that it's succeeding. To trust God when evil opposes God. To trust God when evil uses its power to oppress. To trust God when evil seems to win because we believe that God will end evil. Verse 45. He will pitch the tents of the royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountains. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. He's reminding us that there will come a time. God is silent. He's waiting. He sees the evil. He sees the evil opposes him. He sees the evil using power to oppress. He sees the evil seemingly winning, but there will come a day when God will say from heaven, enough. Enough. Evil will end now. And there will be no one to help. For who can resist Almighty God when He says, enough? We know that God appoints kings. We choose to trust Him when evil arises. And frankly, we trust Him for eternity. Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 12. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insights will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Gabriel closes the vision with a glimpse of the end. I'm so glad. <laughs> right? I'm so glad there wasn't a cliffhanger to where it just looks awful. But he says, we, we get a preview. Oh, next week, here's what's going to happen. And he, he gives us that image so that we'll have some hope, right? So we don't lose hope in what's going to happen. And the Let's recognize what our faith is in. You who are a believer in Jesus Christ, you, you don't just trust him so that you're healthy, right? You don't just trust him for, 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 for your wealth right now. Not really. Not truly. You trusted him for eternity, didn't you? 
Absolutely. In Evangelism Explosion, one of the illustrations that is used is, is to understand what saving faith is. And we, we use faith in a lot of different ways. We'll, we'll use faith like an intellectual assent. For, for instance, I would say that we, we all believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States, right? Absolutely. We're just not really trusting in him to do anything for us today, right? Because he's like uh, dead. So he, he can't, right? So that's, that's, that's an intellectual assent. I believe it in that I, I assent to that intellectual proposition. The second is a temporary faith, to where I might, I might ask God, will you keep me safe on my travels? And I trust God for that temporary thing, and I'm grateful that he does, but it's just a, a temporary faith for a, a, a little thing like that. Or when someone's sick, and I pray, and I say, God, will you please make them well? And they are. And you know, we prayed for, for Darren last week, and God has restored him, and, and we're so glad to see him again, and, and, and we're thankful. And that was a temporary faith, and it's a good faith. It's good to have that, but that's not saving faith. Saving faith is trusting God for eternity, and that's what we're looking at. Saving faith is, is, is a faith that's based on the fact that God knows his own. Look at verse 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress as such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book. There's a book. Who wrote the book? It was God himself, wasn't it? by his own hand that he wrote this book and he wrote down names in that book. David talked about that book in Psalm 139 as he said in verse 16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. There's a book that's been written. As we think about that book, I want to turn your attention to the book of Revelation that talks about this book. Revelation is not as complicated as we tend to make it. And I want to give you a, a sense of the key to the book of Revelation. The bulk of that book is about one thing, and that's the book. That's what the book of Revelation is about. It's about a book. It's about the book of life. It's about a book that God wrote before he created the heavens and the earth. And inside that book, he wrote down all of the names of all of his people. Every one of them, he wrote down. And then when Adam, our first man, our first representative sinned, that book of life was closed and sealed with seven seals and cannot be opened unless those seals are opened. And those seals are seals like death and pestilence and destruction. Most of the book of Revelation is showing us the opening of those seals that Jesus alone could do. So we read about this book in Revelation chapter 5. We read in verse 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. John is seeing this amazing moment. He sees the book of life, the book that has the names of all of the elect of God that is sealed up and they can never be read. They can never receive life. And they are sealed with seven seals and no one is found who can open it up. And what is his response upon seeing such a horrific moment? Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. He recognized that his name could never be read. 
He recognized that none of the apostles' names would be read. He recognized that the names of Moses and Elijah could never be read. They were sealed up. And he weeps bitterly. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. There is no hope. There is only dismay. There is no possibility of salvation for a single soul except in Jesus Christ, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And he turns John's eyes to that. And the bulk of the rest of the book is Jesus having the seals opened. And then at the end, in chapter 20, we see this book once again. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven flee, fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead and the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. That there is a time in which every soul will stand before God and every deed that they've ever done will be judged by Almighty God. The righteous and the wicked alike, all of our deeds will be judged. All of us are found guilty of those sins. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it in death, and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What prevents us from being cast away? That God wrote our name in that book, which is now opened by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our hope. God knows his own. He knows you. And that gives you hope as we look to the future. For we can trust God for eternity to give us such a salvation. And our hope is beyond this world. Looking back at our passage in verse 2 of chapter 12. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life. We trust Him for eternal life, for our personal salvation. Not just our personal peace and prosperity, but our personal salvation, the everlasting life that He alone will give us. We trust Him also that we're able to somehow glorify God as we continue to look at verse 3. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. They'll shine brightly. They'll be able to actually bring glory and honor to God. They will glorify Him. What an amazing thing that you and I are able to bring glory to the King of Kings. What a magnificent God that He can do such a wonderful thing in our life. And then He talks about those who lead the many to righteousness are like the stars forever and ever. Those who lead the many to righteousness. The Great Commission, it says, hang out a while while I make disciples of all the nations. Is that, did I get that right? Is that the new Vinny translation? It's a horrible translation. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. That there are those who lead others to righteousness. Isn't that an amazing reality? 
that we have the privilege of being able to lead others to righteousness. The first of all, the righteousness of salvation. First of all, that we can tell people that Jesus loves them and that he has died for their sins and invite them, would you put your trust in him today? And as they do, they receive the very righteousness of Jesus to cover them. And we get to lead them to that place. What a great, great honor. But we also get to lead people to righteousness because sometimes even as Christians, we forget, right? And we wander away. And we engage in self-destructive strategies. We sometimes think that it's really wise to go stand against a wall and just bang our head against it. And we have those loving people who say, no, 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 no. Come on over here. Come on over here. Oh, isn't that better? Oh, that's much better. Oh, yes, let's go this way, right? And so we move away from banging our head against it and just doing that same old sin over and over again. And we have those who lead us to righteousness and we're able to lead people to righteousness. We're able to bear fruit for King Jesus, are we not? How is that even possible? We were rebels against him and yet he's changed us and he's given us eternal life and he's given us the, the, the ability to bring glory to him and somehow he's going to use us to promote salvation and sanctification in the lives of his people. All praise and glory to Almighty God. Amen? What a God we serve. Do you believe? I don't mean a temporary faith. I mean, do you really trust that Jesus has died for you and that you belong to him? Friends, put your trust in him today. This very moment, ask him, Lord Jesus, forgive me, for I've sinned against you. And then live in this great salvation that he's given to us. Years ago, I was getting ready to take a team to Belize. It was a rather large team, and we would do different uh, uh, team building activities as we try to get the, the team together. And uh, uh, some friends of ours, Jeff and Bonnie, came up with a, an idea, um, a, a variation of the trust fall. Um, you, you know how that works. And, and they said, so everybody had to write out five uh, things that they were trusting God for. One thing is just kind of a small thing, but moving up to something that's really, really huge. And uh, then we took those cards and we taped them onto the rungs of a ladder. The things that we didn't, you know, they weren't really super important, we put down low. And the things that were really important, we put like five rungs up. And then you had to step up on the rung and then you had the card, and you didn't have to tell everybody, but you prayed, and then you fell back, and, and you know, the, the group would catch you, and it was a wonderful thing, and it was really cool, until about rung three, then rung four, and then I'm up at rung four, and I'm realizing, this is a group of teenagers that are going to, and I'm a little bit of a hefty guy, I don't know how well this is going to work, and did I mention they were teenagers? I'm not sure how well they're going to want to work. Are they going to just kind of walk away and let pastor fall and think that's funny? But it's really a great illustration, isn't it? Of how it is in our life. And some things are really easy to trust God for, right? Some things are a bit harder. It's a lot harder to trust God when he raises up kings that we think are unjust, right? It's a lot harder to trust God when evil rises up around us. The most important is to trust God for eternity. And that's when we've got to be all in. Will you trust God? That he appoints kings. Trust him when evil arises. And trust him for eternity. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for this congregation. Thank you for giving me the privilege of shepherding these your people who love you so deeply. 
God, I pray for us that you will make us into a people who trust you. As you bless us, O God, would you speak the words that these people are men, women, and children who trust me. Make it to be true in our lives, O God. And from that, would you lead many to righteousness? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.